Good morning. Good morning. Our reading this morning is from Matthew 18, 21 to 35, page 975. The parable, the parable of the unmerciful servant. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven counts with his servants. As he began 10, <clears throat> as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, pay the mass, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he, that he and his wife and his children and all that they had would be sold to repay the debt. But the, the, the servant fell on his knees before him. He, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But the servant went out. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He, he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back, pay back what you owe me, he, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Well, when, when the other servants saw what, what happened, they, they greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I, I, canc I canceled all the debt of yours because you have begged me, should, because you begged me to. You should, you should have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you. In anger, his master tur turned him over to the jailers to be, th to be tortured until he, until he could pay back all he owed. Thank you. Great hat, Jamie. And thank you for reading scripture. If you are a guest here, perhaps maybe your first time, welcome. We are glad you are here. My name is Phil Reinders. I'm the senior minister here at Knox. We, for the past several weeks, have been uh, working through an ancient creed of faith that Christians across the universe, across the world, throughout time and history have confessed these are the core essentials, and it is the Apostles' Creed. And we have been encouraging everyone Plant this in your heart. Memorize it. And um, Nick did a little survey last week about who of you have memorized it. I wasn't here, but he says, eh, it was about half or so. Anyway, so we printed it in the bulletin this week. Not as a cheat sheet, but so that you can take it home with you this week, commit it to memory, because next week there will be a test, okay? And we're not gonna print it up. We're just gonna go for it together as a community plant these good words of faith deep in your heart. Would you commit these to memory? And as we prepare to reflect together on God's word, let's bow in a moment of prayer.
join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the life that it gives not only to us, but the life it offers the world. You are in the business of renewing and restoring all things, God. We want to participate in that. Teach us your ways. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, there are very few guarantees in life. There are things that you can guarantee. Death, taxes, there are a few. Here's another inevitable thing. At some point in your life, someone will hurt you. It is inevitable. I guarantee you. It's probably happened already, right? Someone is going to insult you. They might leave you when you just really need them at that moment. They'll rip you off. They'll disappoint you. You will be hurt. And here's another guarantee, another inevitability. That hurt will just cut deep to your heart. It's just not getting around it. Some of you are in the middle of that right now, I bet, where you have felt this pain deeply. And when that pain comes, inevitable as it is, there are two quite agonizing choices we face. One is we can take that pain and we can transmit it to others. We can take that pain, we can nurse it, we can hang on to it, and we will inevitably pass it on to others, transmit it to others. And it spreads agony all over. The other choice, agonizing as well, is to transform that pain through forgiveness. The issue of forgiveness, the matter of forgiveness, you know, it's not something that's just a churchy thing that we talk about and deal with only in church circles. Forgiveness is meant to play out in playgrounds, in schoolyards, the boardrooms of Bay Street. It is meant to work its way in our homes, among our friends. It is God's way of healing the world. It is God's most creative power that he gives to us to heal the wounds of a past that we cannot change and that we cannot forget. It's what a body of scientific research is showing us actually heals us. Forgiveness has this power to overcome pain, to alleviate physical suffering. Science validates what Jesus long ago has called you and I into, to take the hand of God and to walk through the door of forgiveness into a whole new reality called the kingdom of God. And so for thousands of years, the church has confessed as central to what we believe, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. It's a part of the Apostles' Creed. And it confesses that our greatest need and God's greatest gift are the very same thing, forgiveness. Forgiveness is our greatest need. It's one of the deepest desires of the human heart. Ernest Hemingway points that out in one of his memorable short stories called The Capital of the World. At the very beginning, he writes this. He says, Madrid is full of boys named Paco, which is the diminutive of the name Francisco. And there is a Madrid joke about a father who came to Madrid and inserted an advertisement in the personal columns of the city newspaper, which said this, quote, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon, Tuesday, all is forgiven, 
Papa, and how a squadron of police had to be called to disperse the 800 young men who came and answered the advertisement. And it's a joke about just the common name of Paco in Spain, but the joke only works because underlying that is the very common deep need for forgiveness, the ache of broken relationships, the longing, the need of so many to be forgiven, whether they are sons or daughters, mothers or fathers, friends or colleagues. We long, we ache for forgiveness because we value relationships. And we know that relationships cannot be mended without forgiveness. And so in the Apostles' Creed, we confess a simply stated confession. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe forgiveness is necessary. It is vital in a world that is so torn apart, broken by sin. We believe forgiveness is God's greatest gift, freely given to all who ask. But take note, this also means that we admit we need it. Forgiveness always begins, real forgiveness always begins with the naming and the condemning of a wrong, which is probably why this is one of the most difficult things in the Apostles' Creed to confess, because it holds up a mirror to us. It admits, I need forgiveness. We believe God forgives lavishly, scandalously, generously. We believe that we desperately need forgiveness because we humans have this propensity, right? We have this innate propensity to royally mess things up. Our inclination is to actively break things, whether they be promises or relationships that we care about or our own well-being or other people's well-being. It's our tendency to squander gifts, to waste time and opportunity that God gives us. It's, it's our disordered desires of our heart. We feel so mixed up. We don't even know how to love well or love right things. You know, it's only a person with a really well-developed skill for obliviousness who is not able to see this truth about themselves. But here's the good news that comes partnered with that hard news that we hear of our sin. God lifts any condemnation from our shoulders. God releases the very massive debt we owe. This is good news. And this is the parable Jesus tells us here in Matthew 18. He talks about how one servant has this massive debt, 10,000 talents, we're told. It is like Jesus saying, there is a person who owed a grillion dollars. Jesus is sort of going over the top, just saying, unpayable debt, this is what it is. It's a massive debt. There's no way that it can be repaid. And the king orders then this servant, pay it back or you can't, okay, you are sold, thrown into prison, your wife, your children, the whole thing, until that debt is paid. Now, so far in the story, there's no forgiveness. And there's no reason to expect it either, right? Because, of course, this is what we expect the way the world works. It's a matter of settled accounts, right? It's about calculated gains and losses. It's about winners and losers. You accrued the debt. You got to pay the debt. You can't do it. Tough for you. And so the servant falls to his knees and begs, have 
patience with me. Be big-hearted about this, would you? I'll pay it back. I will. And the king's attitude changes. He goes straight from having all the mercy of a loan shark to be a genuine softy here. Right? He took pity. And he forgave him the whole debt. The king, of course, ignores all the nonsense about repayment. Because he knows, come on, that's a fool's game. You cannot repay it. The servant, however, assumes the king is not only a strict bookkeeper, he's solely interested in money, I have to repay him, but he also thinks the king must be a pretty dim-witted bookkeeper because he knows he can never pay it back, but somehow he's believing this proposition of repayment that he's serving up. And yet the servant has to do nothing other than ask for grace to get grace. There's no hope of repayment, right? It is simply that the king cancels the debt for reasons entirely known only to the king. This is good news for us. It doesn't matter what you've done or said or what you've thought about saying or thought about doing. It doesn't matter where you've been or who you've been with. There is more grace in God than there is sin in you. Pope Francis Gotta love that Catholic Pope. Pope Francis says, God never tires of forgiving. God never tires of forgiving, but we get tired of asking for forgiveness. You cannot be too bad. You cannot be too broken. You cannot be too boring for God's unconditional love. You can only be too proud to acknowledge how desperately you need it. Take one step towards the Father and He is racing towards you. Offer that unconvincing apology that the prodigal son offered to the Father and God will hug you into silence. Embrace you in His welcome. He will forgive you. We believe in the forgiveness of sins because it summarizes our experience of the gospel, of what God is doing in our lives, what he has done, what he continues to do, of welcoming us home, telling us all is forgiven. It is safe to come home. The king in the parable, right? He makes no calculation of profit or loss in this. He wipes the debt out, forgives it ever existed. And really, you know what he does, the king does? He goes out of the whole business of debt keeping. The king, does, the king does what the servant just cannot imagine. He dies to the whole bookkeeping business altogether, throws it out, saying, I'm not even doing that any longer. The king dies to something. And this is important for us to know, right? To forgive always requires some sacrifice, right? We die to something when we forgive. The king cancels the debt. It didn't go into thin air, right? He absorbed it. He ate it. The debt doesn't go away by ignoring it. You, you pay it down. German pastor and author Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, forgiveness of real wrongs is always a form of suffering. It's voluntary suffering. To not pay back hurt to not lash out, to not fill your mind with the really lovely, nasty thoughts of paying back that person who hurts you, even if it's only in your mind, to not cut down that person you want to mm, so badly, that hurts. And you can either pay back 
or you can forgive, and that means you're suffering. You die to your right, your just right to repayment. You die to that. In all cases, when there's a wrong done, there is a debt, right? And there's no way to deal with that without suffering, without dying. Either you make the perpetrator die or suffer, or you forgive and you suffer. And it's the servant's failure to see the king's death in the first half of the story, the failure of the servant to fail to see the king's sacrifice in the first half of the story that only makes sense of his just unfathomable unforgiveness, his mercilessness in the last half. This unforgiving sinner continues to play the bookkeeping game, and he chooses a losing life instead of a gracious death. And so the king gives him over to that life. Okay, you want to play that game? As you wish. The servant has been shown this extravagant mercy, freshly freed from prison, and then he turns around and will not forgive a smaller debt given to him. It's probably a friend that he took to Starbucks. The friend forgot their wallet, right? Oh, okay, buy my coffee. And he says, payback time. It was a vente, remember? You gotta pay me that debt. He will not forgive it. And Jesus names that as wickedness. You wicked servants. We believe in the forgiveness of sins, not just as a nice idea, but as a practice, as a way of life. For us to choose not to forgive is to live completely at odds with the gospel. It is an affront to God and it's to his mercy for us. And so because of that, the parable ends with a pretty sobering conclusion. The servant is thrown back into prison where he's tormented and tortured. And the exclamation point in this parable in Jesus' teaching is his final words. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive from the heart. Boom! Mic drop, as the kids say. (laughs) Now I imagine some of you might think, come on Jesus, that's a little over the top. Right? How cruel of the master. And Isn't that cruel of God? Well, remember, okay, this is a parable, right? Jesus is painting a picture for us of what forgiveness, what unforgiveness looks like. But don't miss the strong point Jesus is making here either. If you, if we who have been shown so much mercy of God, if we do not forgive others, if we remain in our unforgiveness, no matter who it is, well, you want to know what that is like, Jesus is saying? It's a prison where you will be tormented and you will be tortured. That is what unforgiveness is like. See, unforgiveness fools us. It fools us into thinking we have a perceived power over something. I've got something over this person, right? Unforgiveness makes us feel like that. So it fools us into thinking we have this perceived power when in reality it has placed you in a very real prison. If you do not forgive, If we do not learn how to do this, unforgiveness just passes into us like a poison and it distorts us. It's going to twist your character. It's going to torment your memories. And there's going to be misery and you, in a very real way, will be in a prison. You will not be living a free life. And you know, the the most scandalous part about this parable, I think, is that servant was someone who first 
experienced generosity. That servant was brought in to the king's lavish generosity. He was included in the king's grace and goodness. But he refused to live that life. He refused to let go of his losing life of bookkeeping instead of living out the generosity of the king. If we refuse to die to that losing life of debt and record keeping, of binding on others the debts they owe to us, we will, by not letting grace have its way through us, we will cut ourselves off from ever knowing the joy of grace in us. There's an Episcopal priest, Robert Capon, who I really enjoy. He writes this. He says, fascinating thing. In heaven, there are only forgiven sinners. But in hell, too, there are only forgiven sinners. Think about that. In heaven, there are only forgiven sinners. But in hell, too, there are only forgiven sinners. The sole difference, he says, between heaven and hell is that in heaven, forgiveness is accepted and passed along. But in hell... It is rejected and blocked. In heaven, the death of the king is welcomed and becomes the doorway to new life through the resurrection. In hell, the old life of bookkeeping world is insisted on and becomes forever the pointless torture it always was. Here's the thing. You can be forgiven and still be in prison. You can be forgiven and still be in hell because you have never received it and given it. True freedom, according to this parable, true freedom is not only receiving forgiveness, but because of that, then extending that forgiveness to others. Those two are so palpably connected. There is a direct link, a direct connection between our reception of God's forgiveness and our forgiving of others. We cannot detach our relationship with others from our relationship with God. Every time we confess, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, we're not only confessing God's forgiveness of us, we're not only receiving, once again, our forgiveness, uh, God's forgiveness of our sins, but we are rehearsing God's call given to us to be people who embody and live out forgiveness. This one line, brief little line in the Apostles' Creed summarizes both the experience of the gospel but also the call of the gospel. It is a cry for reconciliation at every level in our broken relationship with God, in our broken relationship with others, in our broken relationship with the world. It's what Ruby Bridges knew and lived. I don't know if you know Ruby Bridges. I have a feeling you probably heard her story. At age six, Ruby Bridges became the first African-American girl to attend an all-white elementary school in Louisiana. Each day, she was escorted from the school to the school and back, back and forth by 25 federal marshals to protect her from the raging protesters. You might remember the Norman Rockwell uh, painting about that. Can you put that on the screen? There, that painting. I, I imagine you've seen that painting. That depicted that moment of Ruby Bridges heading to school, guarded by federal marshals. One woman, while she walked to school, would scream death threats at Ruby. Another protester had a black doll in a coffin that she presented to this young girl. 
And every parent pulled their children out of that school. Every parent. Ruby sat alone in an empty school, and she was taught by Barbara Henry, who was the only teacher who was willing to offer her an education. And during this horrible, horrible season, child psychologist Robert Coles offered Ruby counseling. And so once a week, they sat together and they talked. And at one meeting, Dr. Coles asked Ruby, he said, Ruby, you look like you were talking to people on the street on your way to school yesterday. Did you finally get angry with them? Were you telling them to leave you alone? No, doctor, Ruby said. I didn't tell them anything. I don't talk to them. Well, who were you talking to? Dr. Coles asked. And Ruby stared at Dr. Coles and said, I was talking to God. I was praying to God for the people on the street. And Coles was just gobsmacked. And he said, you were praying for them? But Ruby, why were you praying for them? And with these wide eyes of sort of disbelief, Ruby said, well, don't you think they need praying for? And psychologist Robert Coles was lost for words. And after regaining his composure, he wondered, what do you say when you pray for them, Ruby? And she said, oh, I always say the same thing. Please, God, try to forgive these people. Because even if they say those bad things, they don't know what they're doing. She confessed in the forgiveness of sins, the power of that. God's forgiveness calls us to forgive those who sin against us to do that with kids at school who have made fun of you and their jokes have hurt. To forgive our loud and obnoxious neighbors who are not going to change those things that irritate us. To forgive those cutthroat colleagues who have made us little in meetings, who have, who have impeded our career advancement with friends who have betrayed us with church members who have offended us we are called to extend forgiveness because this is how the cycle of hatred is broken in the world this is how the world gets healed and you want a picture of that fast forward from ruby bridges a little forward show the next picture in 2001 july ruby bridges was invited by president barack obama to the white house where Norman Rockwell's painting was on display, that one we just looked at. And the two of them, the girl from the painting and the first African-American president stood there looking at that schoolgirl in the white dress. And at one moment, Obama turned to her and said, if it wasn't for you guys, I wouldn't be here today. Ruby Bridges shows us the hope of this little line in the Apostles' Creed that our choices to forgive change the world. That little schoolgirl, her prayers for forgiveness, they change the world. Those small acts of forgiveness, no matter how small you might think they are, they lead to the breaking of the cycles of bitterness. They heal divisions. They multiply grace. 
It is forgiveness alone that has the capacity to break the chains of injustice, to give us the possibility of a new future. And don't we need it? Our world is so bitterly divided. I mean, left and right, black and white, rich and poor, east and west, liberal, conservative, women and men. The lawyer Michael Ramsden says that the three most powerful words currently in the English language are this, I am offended. Jesus offers us three better words. You are forgiven. Societies are fragmenting. Politics are polarizing, right? We got tribalism and nationalism, and at this moment, we cannot isolate our confession of God's forgiveness for us and Christ's call to be forgiven forgivers. Reconciliation is what the kingdom looks like. It is. Jesus introduced this parable by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It is like a king who forgives a grillion-dollar debt. It is like a schoolgirl who forgives racist neighbors. This is God's kingdom. This is about forgiveness and reconciliation. You know, there's an interesting historical note about the Apostles' Creed, about this line in the Apostles' Creed. This confession of the forgiveness of sins was actually a late addition to the Creed. It wasn't in earlier versions. But during the fourth century, the church faced, well, a big debate about sin and forgiveness. Just prior, Christians had suffered pretty horrible persecutions. They had lost homes, property was burned, people were thrown in prison, they lost jobs, they lost lives. And countless very frightened Christians renounced their faith in the face of that persecution and they sacrificed to the Roman gods. But after the persecution subsided, all those apostate believers came back to church, which created sort of a crisis. People were wondering, what do we do with them? Can can they be accepted back? Do do they need to be rebaptized? Or should they be permanently excluded from the church? And there were ministers also who aligned with the empire and renounced their faith. What do you do with them? What do you do with the people who are baptized by them? Is your baptism, if you were baptized by one of those apostate ministers, is that baptism still valid, still good? And so the church struggled with some fairly deep questions about what makes up your Christian identity. Is the, and who, and what the church is like. Is the church a community of just the pure, the righteous, the ones who have stood fiercely and faithfully Or can weak, struggling souls also find a place in the church? And this led the church to insert this line in the creed. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. And every time we profess that, we're professing something about us as a church. We're saying that the church includes everyone who confesses Jesus and receives their baptism. It is not just for the pure. It is not only for the righteous. It is not just for the successful disciples, it is also for the failed disciples. Even for very spectacular public failures, they are not excluded from the grace of God. This line in the Apostles' Creed reminds us of what Augustine said, we must never despair of 
anyone at all. We must never despair of anyone at all. The forgiveness of sins has taken place once and for all in Jesus Christ, and we stand on that. And that makes us, as a church here at Knox, that makes us a community of the flawed, a community of the failed, community of the forgiven. We are forgiven forgivers. That means we're going to be patient and gentle with the repeated failings of others because we believe in the forgiveness of sins. That means we're going to be a community of understanding and scandalous grace to all the imperfect because we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And whenever a judgmental spirit enters in and we're tempted to get on our high, haughty horses and make judgments of people and their poor discipleship lives, we remember this judgment. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And it teaches us we do not stand on our own holy achievements, but only on what is achieved for us through Jesus' death and resurrection. And it means that not even our worst failures put us beyond the welcoming embrace of God. And that even... Even if we should turn from God, if our hearts grow cold, if we forget God, it says God never forgets us. God's faithful love is far greater, far deeper than any of our unfaithfulness. And that, friends, is good news that heals a broken world. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice we revel in your forgiveness of us what an astonishing thing it is god i pray that you would give each and every one of us here a new a deepened appreciation of what you have done for us through the cross forgiving us from all of our sins our grave offenses god cosmic offenses God, I pray that we would be set free to worship, to rejoice in brand new ways because we are aware of the debt that has been paid. God, you have ushered us into your kingdom of grace and generosity and may we live fully there. And God, it's hard for us to extend that forgiveness for others. We'll confess that. God, would you inspire in us a new desire to extend that radical forgiveness to others, difficult as that may be. God, we pray that you would break down strongholds, even in this room, prisons, where we're in bondage to unforgiveness. God, there is such a glorious future you have for us, for this church, for our families, for our country. And so teach us, teach us, God, the way of Jesus. Teach us to trust in the mystery of the cross, the lavish forgiving love we know in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.